This is an Enlightenment Day talk by Joel, titled Subject and Object are One, recorded August 8, 2004, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Today is our day to celebrate enlightenment. So we have to pick Sunday to celebrate it, and we pick the Sunday that is closest to the date of August 13th, because that was the date of my enlightenment, August 13th, 1983. But the truth of the matter is, really, we are not really celebrating my enlightenment for two reasons. Uh, one is there's no such thing as my enlightenment. It's one of the paradoxes of enlightenment, which we're going to be talking about in a little bit, that the essence of enlightenment is to realize there is no one there to be enlightened. And by the same token, there's no one there to be in bondage either. So that's how the liberation comes about. But there is no my enlightenment. And actually, if you read through the mystics of all these traditions, I think you'll get a sense that the enlightenment is universal. It's everybody looking at the same sun, you might say. So on one side, if you look at it from the side of the person who's getting the look, it looks individual, but the sun is the same for everybody. So if we're all scattered over the earth and there's clouds over the sun and, and the clouds part and we all see the sun, then we're seeing the same sun. So that the sun does not belong to anybody. So enlightenment does not belong to anybody. But also, really, what we're celebrating is the potential for every human being to wake up to their true nature, which is another way of talking about enlightenment. That potential exists in every single human being. And it's not reserved for genius. In fact, you have a little bit of advantage if you are not such a genius, if you don't know so much. The more you know, the more your head is full of delusion. And so the less you know, the less delusion you have to work through. So very clever, very knowledgeable people have a much more difficult time. And you'll see this uh, expressed in a lot of traditions. You hear a lot of talk about becoming like a child in many traditions, not just the Christian tradition. Becoming a child does not mean becoming emotionally immature, but it does mean recapturing that sense of openness and sense of wonder, unfiltered by all this knowledge that we have. So it's not a question of being a genius. It's the birthright of everybody, and everybody has this potential. Now, it is true, historically that very few people, compared to the populations of the earth, have woken up. And so we can ask why this should be the case. And I think uh, one of the main reasons is most people just aren't aware of this possibility. Most of the religions, or let me put it this way, most of the proponents of the various religions do not present religion as a path to enlightenment. And this is true in the East and the West, by the way. In the Abrahamic traditions, they tend to present religion as a path to heaven or paradise. After you die, you're going to find happiness, you're going to go to heaven. So in a symbolic way, this is teaching about enlightenment. It's teaching about the possibility of really putting an end to suffering and really discovering happiness. But it's being told in a kind of parable, in a kind of myth. The same is true in the East, that most people who practice religion in the East, despite 
what we think and how Eastern religions present it to us in the West. Most people are not striving for enlightenment in this lifetime. They're striving for a better birth. And eventually, in their minds, they'll have a birth in which it will be possible to wake up forever and escape the wheel of samsara. So there's this kind of ignorance. So one of the primary responsibilities of someone who does wake up is to at least bear witness to this possibility. The second problem, though, is even people who are informed, who have heard the good news, harbor doubts. As I did, by the way, it's almost impossible not to, because it's such a radical claim that something would be wrong with you if you didn't harbor some doubts about it. And they doubt, first of all, is there really such a thing as enlightenment? Because it's so mysterious, no one can actually tell you what it is. And then the other one is, is it really all it's cracked up to be? I mean, you know, does it really put an end to suffering? Does it really make you happy? I mean, our experience in life is, you know, things make us happy for a little while, but nothing really completely makes us happy. So we have doubts about that. And I think that most people who do wake up, if you read their biographies, it's not just because they followed a spiritual path and not just because they did the practices, but in some way there was an element of grace entering into their lives. A lot of people are just pushed by extreme suffering and they don't really have a choice about it. They're just pushed up against the wall by the suffering. They're pushed into a place where they just have to let go. Other people, and I think it's rare, but it does happen, other people are attracted by love. They're just swept away by this divine love that enters their lives. And this current of love is what entices them to just giving up, surrendering to this current, just letting everything go. And then there are people like me who don't quite know what they're doing and are stumbling around in the dark and sort of fall off the cliff. And I mean, if I'd known what I was doing, I never would have done it. So we're protected. We're God's fools. We're protected by our ignorance. And so we don't know what's going on. So those are the kinds of things that happen that are beyond the practice. But it's certainly for 99% of the people who've woken up, the practice and walking a spiritual path has been extremely important. Sometimes after they wake up, they don't make the connection. And you will hear a lot of people today talking about how, oh, meditation is not important. This isn't important. You know, just give everything up and wake up. If you read their biographies, though, they actually did a lot of practice themselves. And one of the paradoxes of practice is practice exhausts itself. And Ramana Maharshi, in whose name a lot of people make this claim, you don't need any practice, Ramana Maharshi himself said, you need sadhanas, practices, until you wake up. And you do your sadhanas. And then there comes a time where you can no longer do your practice, even though you want to. Then that's when the self reveals itself. There's a big difference about not being able to do your practice and giving your practice up by an act of will. When you can't do your practice, that means you are surrendered. Your will and your effort is already surrendered. So it is important to be on a spiritual path. And it is important to deal with these doubts, not just shove them under the table, you know, exoteric religious practitioners discourage you from doubting, but mystics say, no, you should doubt. Not only should you doubt what we're talking about, doubt everything. Let's be thorough about it. Doubt what you've been taught as you grew up. Doubt what your parents told you. Doubt what your peers believe around you. What everybody just takes for granted. 
doubt, 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 doubt everything. If you're going to doubt, doubt radically. Yes. One more, doubt your doubt. Doubt your doubt. Yes, you can. That, yes, that will really get you confused, and you want to be confused. Ibn Arabi, great Sufi, says the whole path leads to bewilderment. Bewilderment. And Rumi says, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. So you start doubting your doubt. That'll get you there quick. So I thought this morning I'd spent a little time talking about one of the things that persuaded me to go on a spiritual path and alleviated some of these doubts. And then I'll throw open the floor to any kind of questions you want to ask about my experience or whatever, and we can deal with that. But in the meantime, let's begin with this. Now, on my path, if you read my book, you will see or you will remember that I was exposed to a number of mystics, and I did read across traditions, and I did uh, come across uh, descriptions or teachings or whatever that were very similar from Buddhist to Christian I couldn't believe it because the outer forms of religions are so different. And that was very powerful for me, convincing me that these people were on to something. That if it was just one isolated mystic here or there, you know, they could just be crazy. But this was a kind of a madness that did have a method in it. And it was a madness that transcended cultural and religious and traditional boundaries. So it was a kind of a universal madness. So this was very intriguing to me. And then afterwards, in the last 20 years here, what I've been doing is studying more and more about the mystics and their practices and so forth. Because I had a very short and uh, very restricted path, I really didn't know what to teach. And when people started asking me to teach, I had to go out and find out what to teach people. So I've been making a lifelong study of how to teach this stuff, or at least as far as it can be taught. And the more you look into it, at least in my experiences, the more you find what today philosophers call a remarkable degree of intersubjective agreement. And it does transcend time and place and culture and tradition. So today I thought we'd talk about one teaching that there's this tremendous intersubjective agreement on. There are a number of them. The first one is that it can't be put into words. And you'll find all mystics say that right off the bat. Teresa Avila says, everything I say falls short of the truth because it's indescribable. She doesn't mean it's indescribable like your mother's apple pie, you know, so good, I just can't tell you how good it is. She means literally, and the mystics mean literally it's indescribable because it is a non-dual reality that is disclosed. And every time we use a, a thought or a word or a concept, we create duality. We create a boundary. We create a distinction. So the minute we try to talk about it, we are distinguishing something from something else, and that means we're leaving something out. So we can't fully talk about it. We can't even fully think about it. That's why enlightenment, gnosis, realization is beyond thoughts, beyond concepts. But there are a number of places where the teachings intersect, and this is a particularly precise formulation that has to do with subject and object, I and other, and self and world. That dichotomy that runs through our lives, that is part of almost all of our experience. In fact, the only time it's not part of our experience normally is when we are in dreamless sleep. But then we're not lucid, so we don't know it. So let me start by reading you some quotes from the different traditions, and then we'll go back and talk about them in a little bit more detail. 
Here's the first one. This is a great Tibetan Buddhist sage called Longchenpa. Here's what he says. Aho! In the perception which is natural and pure from the beginning arises the wonderful intrinsic awareness that makes one laugh. There is no duality of mind and its object, and the perceiver is void in essence. Here's Zen master Huang Po, who was a Chinese Zen master. A perception, sudden as blinking, that subject and object are one, will lead to a deeply mysterious, wordless understanding. And by this understanding, you will awake to the truth of Zen. Here's the Taoist sage, Chong Tzu. Heaven and earth were born at the same time I was, and the ten thousand things are one with me. The ten thousand things is a Chinese idiom. It doesn't mean literally ten thousand things. It means everything. It means all the phenomena. The myriad creatures, the ten thousand things, they're just ways of saying all of this stuff. Here's uh, an ancient Hindu mystic, Shankara, who I mentioned earlier this morning. The illumined seers know him as the utmost reality, infinite, absolute, without parts, pure consciousness. In him they find that knower, knowledge, and known have become one. Here's a contemporary uh, Hindu mystic, Anandamoyama. What does Atma Darshana, direct perception of that, mean? Atma Darshana is another word for enlightenment or realization. It means seer, seeing, and seeing. These three are realized as modifications created by the mind, superimposed on the one all-pervading Here's the great Sufi master Ibn Arabi talking about the Gnostic, the one who's awake. He sees only God as being that which he sees, perceiving the seer to be the same as the seen. Uh, here's the Jewish Kabbalist Abraham Abulafia, or Abulafia. And he's talking here about intellect, but he's using it in the Aristotelian sense. He's not using it in the modern sense of just the thinking part of the mind. He's talking about the whole uh, ability of the mind to comprehend, to perceive. Something close to what we would call awareness today. You shall then arrive at the intelligible, and you will find all these one. That is, the intellect and the object of intellection and the intelligible are all one. And here's the Christian mystic John Rosebrook. What we are, that we behold, and what we behold, that we are. For in this pure vision we are one life and one spirit with God. So here's representatives of all the six great traditions. Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Mystics of all these traditions. Now, they're all saying there's something here about the unity of subject and object, the unity of self and world. This is quite incredible. Different times, different places. They're not reading each other. 
It's not like they learned adoption, they passed it on. They're all discovering the same thing. So in this particular case, let's just talk a little bit about what it is they're discovering. So let's go back over this again. But let's start with this idea of subject and object, self and world. Because it's not a philosophical perception. And we want to be able to relate it to our own experience. Right now, look at your experience and ask yourself, do I feel, without necessarily any philosophical ideas about what it might be, but do I feel there's someone in here and there's a world out there? Is that what you experience? And isn't this always part of our experience? Don't we just take it for granted that, in fact, that is so, that there is someone in here and there's a world out there. So what these mystics are saying is that is not true. That experience is false. It's a delusion. It's true that you're having the experience, but the experience is not representing reality. The reality is there is no difference between you and the world. You and what you're seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting. Now, you can make a practice of this, and I urge you to do this. Since this is your experience and you believe it to be true, go look and see if you can find where the boundary is between you and the object you and your perception. And a nice place to start, by the way, is to hold up your own hand and say, is that me or not? And then you can play and you can think, well, okay, supposing this hand was lopped off, am I losing a part of myself? I mean, is it really me? Maybe this isn't me. We have a funny relationship with our bodies. Are we our bodies or are we not our bodies? Are you your teeth? Well, I have a goof pulled out last spring. Yanked it out, just like that. Well, was it me when it was stuck in there and now it's not me when the dentist is holding it in his place? No, these are what we want to examine. We want to examine our lives. Our lives as we live them. This experience, as mystics claim to be a delusion, of being a self, looking out on a world, is really the source of all our suffering. It's the source of all our suffering because just that, without anything else, is an experience of existential, fundamental loneliness. Being cut off from the world. And let me speak a little personally here, because I can tell you, at least for myself, all my life, until my awakening, I felt, you know, a little bit like uh, the kid looking in the candy store window. In varying degrees, sometimes very lonely, sometimes really isolated and left out of things. And sometimes it was like I was in the candy store and I was eating, but somehow I didn't quite belong there. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does anybody have that feeling? This usually isn't a great source of suffering for us. It can be when it comes to the four, when we're really lonely and feel isolated and get depressed and da-da-da-da-da. But it's an undertone of suffering in our lives. And then because we feel this, 
there's a natural urge to acquire, to get, to close this gap, to reach out, to make whole again, because we feel this as a kind of split. And so we're always wanting, and we're always grabbing. And there is a wisdom in that. It's based on a true intuition. Something's wrong with this feeling that I am cut off and, and isolated. And so our grasping is more than just a biological grasping. You know, even awakened people get hungry and they eat. There's a famous Zen saying, what is Zen? Well, when I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm tired, I sleep. I'm not talking about just that. I'm talking about the meaning we give to that. The meaning is, if only I could get this goodie, I'd be happy. Whether it's a food goodie or a clothes goodie or a house goodie, or maybe some psychological goodies, some respect, some emotional goodies. And because all the myriad creatures, the 10,000 things, are all impermanent, we can never close the cat that way. Everything we grab onto is impermanent, disappears, and then we need something else. And we end up being disappointed. So we're always, in a certain sense, in conflict with the world. We're trying to do something that cannot be done. And then, of course, it gets extremely complicated because we're extremely complicated beings. But the root of it is we can never become happy through this grasping. But the grasping, the desire, is based on a true intuition. The trick is, from mystic's point of view, is not to get, it's to realize you already have. And you already have because you already are. There's nothing out there to get a hold of that you aren't. You are this. So there's nothing to grasp. There's nothing to push away. So this is why it's such a profound teaching, why it speaks to our suffering directly, to our experience directly, even though here it's phrased in a little bit more of a philosophical way, a little bit more of an abstract way. But there's a plus when that happens. We get something very precise. There are other ways of formulating this that are more poetic. A very common metaphor in the traditions is that enlightenment is like the river that runs into the ocean and is lost, or it's like the rain that falls into the sea and becomes one with the sea. East and West mystics use this metaphor which is beautiful and perhaps speaks to the heart more, but it's not as precise as this formulation of subject and object are one. Not that you have to choose between. We have both a poetic formulation and a precise one. But it's important when you read these teachings to try to relate them to your own experience, your own life. What are they talking about, subject and object in one? Well, what is the subject in my life and what are the objects? And get a feel for that. Then you start to really penetrate the teachings. So let's go through this in a little bit more detail here. And each one has something else to add, which I will comment on. So going back to Longchenpa. Aho! In the perception which is natural and pure from the beginning. This is an idea that crops up in all the traditions one way or another, that everything is already liberated. Everything is already pure. Truly speaking, nothing has to be done. Jesus says in the Gospel of Thomas, you know, the kingdom of God is laid upon the earth and people don't see it. You know, the kingdom isn't coming here or coming there. It's already here. We don't see it. Everything is pure from the beginning. Arises the wonderful intrinsic awareness that makes one laugh. The intrinsic awareness, this direct seeing, this direct cognition. That's another way of talking about enlightenment. 
makes one laugh. I mean, this is another thing. If you read through the autobiographies of mystics, it's like a great cosmic joke. It's a joke on you, not a joke on anyone else. It's how could I have gone through these 40 miserable years and not seen this? It's right there in front of your face. Incredible. Just incredible. It's too obvious. That's the problem. It's not hidden. It's just too obvious. And partly because our attention is always looking for the next thing to come up that's going to make us happy, keeps skipping over what is already here. There is no duality of mind and its object. See, I said this all the time. When I was on my path, I would think, okay, I'm going to try this out. See, I'd read something like that. So here's the object, and here's the mind. The mind is looking at it. There's no duality between mind and the object? What are you talking about? Of course there's a duality between mind and the object. This is a gong. It's out there. The mind is up in here someplace. But then, you know, after I'd read so many people saying the same thing, I'd come back, I'd look again and again and again. How could this be? What am I missing? How is it I can't see this? But I stuck with it. <laughs> That's the exhaustion part comes in. So. Okay, and then he finishes by saying, there is no duality of mind and its object, and the perceiver is void in essence. One reason there's no duality between subject and object is because the boundary that separates them is imaginary. It does not truly exist. So if I just have a boundary, if I draw a circle up here, let's say this was a blackboard, I draw a circle, then I have an inside and an outside. You could let that represent subject and object, right? So, okay, and then I can have long discussions about this, what's inside and what's outside and the relation between the subject and object, and I can have therapies and all kinds of things. But supposing this line is imaginary, supposing it doesn't truly exist, I don't have any subject, and then I can't have any objects. Because the line defines them both. It divides and it joins them at the same time. It's very interesting and mysterious about that. Our minds think dualistically. It's either or. But just a simple circle on a blackboard dividing inside from outside, it isn't either or. What joins the outside to the inside is exactly what divides it. Very interesting how imagination works and boundaries work and distinction work. You can continue to investigate. I'm just trying to spark things here. Okay, Zen Master Huang Po. A perception, sudden as blinking, that subject and object are one, will lead to a deeply mysterious, wordless understanding. And by this understanding, you will awake to the truth of Zen. A perception, sudden as blinking, a very important. The realization is sudden. Awakening is sudden. There's a whole debate in Buddhism about gradual awakening, sudden awakening, and it's a false debate. And even the founder of the sudden school, Wei Ning, said it's a false debate. The path is gradual in the sense that we can identify attachments and we can identify grasping and we can identify self-centered conditioned behavior. And in identifying it, we can let it go. We can start to drop it. And all these things make up the delusion of self. The delusion of self isn't a thing, it's an activity. So we start to cease that activity. We start to dismantle this delusion and we have less suffering. All that happens in a, in a sense gradually. 
But waking up, it's an eternal, a timeless reality that is being disclosed. And you cannot get from time to timelessness gradually through time. And I'm leery of using metaphors from science because they're overdone sometimes, but it really is like a quantum leap. A quantum leap is when an electron goes from one orbit to another without going through time or space. That's one of the great mysteries of quantum mechanics. Well, one of those things that makes people stop and go, what kind of reality is that? Well, in a certain sense, this perception is like that. It does not happen in time and space. So sudden. Uh, will lead to a deeply mysterious, wordless understanding. Wordless. It cannot really be put into words. But, you know, uh, Lao Tzu began the Tao Te Ching, the foundational text of Taoism, with a little verse, the Tao that can be Taoed is not the true Tao. And Tao is a play on words here. It's a pun because Tao means the way and it also means to speak. So the Tao which can be spoken about is not the true Tao. So again, it's a paradox. Essentially, it's beyond words. But if we have to use words, well, let's say subject and object are one. Subject and object are one. Why are they one? Because there is no true boundary between them. So talking about Taoists, here's the Taoist sage Shong Su. Heaven and earth were born at the same time I was. Well, you know, that's, again, this uh, trying to express the sense of eternity. Enlightenment is retroactive. And then he goes on to say, and the 10,000 things are one with me. So you look around, 10,000 things. Well, I know there are about 40 people in this room. That's a start. And then there's some, you know, there's six books here, and we could keep going for 10,000 things and beyond. You know, the trees, the park, the flowers, the, you know. This is how meditation helps you. Because if you do meditate, and if you can get beyond your own thoughts, they're going on, but you're not wrapped up in them, you can start to see directly what the mystics are talking about, short of full enlightenment. And you can see that all this stuff arises in consciousness, the 10,000 things. There's nothing outside of consciousness, is there, really? I mean, let me put it this way. You have never experienced anything outside of consciousness. Whether you think there's something outside of consciousness or not, that's speculation. But you've never experienced it, and that speculation is in consciousness. You can't ever escape outside. Then in what sense can any of this be separated from consciousness? Kind of like this gong occupying space. We move it around in the space in this room. And we think it was different from space. But could this gong be here without space? And if it couldn't, in what sense is it really separable from space? Isn't the gong really a kind of an expression of the space? We might want to put it that way if you want to be a little poetical. It's interesting to just think about space sometime. We throw space around all the time. What is it? It's nothing. Nothing. It is not a thing, literally. And yet everything depends on it, doesn't it? Interesting. Here's um, Shankara. The illumined seers know him, him is Brahman, know him as the uttermost reality, infinite, absolute, without parts, limitless, without boundaries. The Kabbalist term for God is Einsoft, without end, without limits, without boundaries. 
without parts. Parts, we need distinctions. But if all distinctions are really imaginary, there are no true parts. One thing flows into another. It's like ocean and waves, which is another very common metaphor in all the traditions. What is the relation of God to the phenomenal world? Well, it's like the waves on an ocean. And again, on one hand, we can think about them separately, but we can't separate the waves from the ocean. We can talk about the waves themselves as being separate. Don't talk to the surfers. I don't know what their language is, but they have, you know, the Big Ten wave and the hot curl wave and this and that. They got all sorts of names for waves. But really, are the waves separate from each other? No, it's all ocean. And we can see in that case how language is deceiving us if we really start to believe the waves are really separable from each other or the ocean. Uh, infinite without parts, pure consciousness. Pure consciousness. This is a term that keeps coming up, particularly in the Eastern traditions. The Hindus are always talking about consciousness, and Buddhists uh, don't like to use any positive terms for ultimate reality because they know how easily it is for our minds to seize upon a positive term and separate it out and make it into something, some big daddy in the sky or something. But eventually, they do have to use some positive terms. Otherwise, Buddhism sounds very nihilistic. And the terms they use are things like big mind, universal mind, intrinsic awareness, primordial awareness, all synonyms for consciousness. And occasionally, you'll find, if you read through the literature, that Buddhists talk about it's not consciousness and it's mind and so forth. And that's due to a, a, a kind of fluke that happened in the beginning of the translation of technical Buddhist terms. The earlier translators translated subject-object consciousness and used the term consciousness. And so in the translations, when you run across consciousness, it usually refers to deluded consciousness, subject-object consciousness. And they'll use awareness or some other similar term when they mean the intrinsic awareness, as Longchampa says. But don't be fooled, that's just a semantical thing. In the uh, Western traditions, of course, God is spirit, and consciousness is a very recent term, I mean, it's only a few hundred years old. It came into uh, usage as spirit was going out of usage, because of the European intelligentsia, they didn't believe in spirit anymore, but how do you describe this mysterious immaterial perception? Well, consciousness, that's a nice scientific-sounding term, so settled on that. In Islam, it's very interesting, the Sufis point to a passages, and not just one, but several passages in the Quran, where God is described as the hearing and the seeing. And most Muslims, you know, it's like Christians or Jews, they think that means God's all-hearing and all-seeing, he looks down there, he can see when you're doing naughty things in the dark and, you know, he's keeping track of you and whatnot. But no, no, no. The Sufis say, no, no. It means literally God is the hearing, is the seeing. And all the other faculties that are really consciousness, the perception. So they don't have one word that translates as consciousness in that sense, but these passages the Sufis point to very clearly is consciousness. So this word consciousness, it's a very recent Western word, but it works very well. And I like it personally, because it also ties in with things that are going on in science today, with the mystery of consciousness and how that fits in with quantum mechanics and all that. So it's a very nice, useful word to use in this present time. 
In him they find, in Brahman, they find knower, knowledge, and known have become one. Again, now we've moved into a totally different tradition, a new tradition, but the same thing is being said. Now, Ananda Moyamai adds a little bit to this. She says, what does Atma Darshana, direct perception of that, that's a stock Hindu phrase, that thou art, which can mean you are the ultimate Brahman, but it also can mean you are that, whatever that might happen to be. Yeah, there, that, you are that. Both things. So she describes it. She says, seer, seeing, seeing. These three are realized as modifications created by the mind superimposed on the all-perceiving consciousness. So now we're getting amplification of this. How come we have this experience of subject and object, self and world? Because the mind, imagination, has created these distinctions for the purposes of communication, for language purposes, linguistic purposes. And they work very well, by the way. As I've often said, if we couldn't distinguish uh, you from me, then when I said, I have to go to the bathroom, everybody would jump up and run in there. And we got two bathrooms and it would be a mess. <laughs> it's important to be able to distinguish who's going to the bathroom. <laughs> and it's important for surfers to distinguish, you know, what wave is coming up so they know whether to paddle out there or not. So at that level, it works for us. But when we mistake the devices of our imagination and our language to be realities, that's where we get into trouble. So she's saying this is all imposed on reality, just the way surfers might impose a schema of waves on the ocean. The waves aren't that. I mean, they aren't curls and, and big and small and all that. They are just waves. This is another interesting exercise. Just walk through a park and look around. And notice, the mind says, oh, Doug Fir. Well, the tree does not have a label saying Doug Fir. There's a superimposition, a projection. The tree is not a Doug Fir. It's not even a tree, I got to tell you. We live in an imaginary world. Literally, this is not just a one-time deal. We imagine something. We're constantly creating this imaginary world we live in. We're throwing all these labels and divisions and distinctions out there, and then we're going, oh my God, what an awful world we live in. So she's giving you a clue how this works. So part of training in meditation, as we tried earlier this morning, is a training to stop projecting, to stop superimposing all these things on the world. Because our problem is not to see something that isn't already there, is to suspend the delusion. And then we see what is there. To remove the veils, as the Sufis say. That's all we have to do. That is what a spiritual path is about. There is nothing truly hidden here. You know, you don't have to go uh, look under a rock or, or dig down into the earth or go up to the sky. So this is the problem. We have to stop doing something. Our problem isn't that we're not doing the right thing. And one of the things that everybody does on the spiritual path, they think, oh, I, I'm not doing the right thing. If I can only figure out the right thing to do, everything will be all right. No, it's not whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It's your doing, period, that is the problem. Krishnamurti once said this very nicely. He said, uh, you know, it's like a, a circle. And we start in the center, and we start moving out in some direction. We're going north. 
And then we do that in life for a while and it's not working out, we're unhappy and so forth. And then, you know, we pick up the paper and we read about how to win friends and influence people. Take this course, you know, it only costs you 10 grand, but you know, you'll be rich and famous and all that. So we go do that. Now we start moving west. Well, that doesn't work out. So, you know, we find something else to do. I'll be an artist. If I can't be happy, at least I can be famous. So I can be a tragic <laughs> artist. But, you know, so then we start moving south or whatever. But on a spiritual path, it's not a question of finding the right direction to move. It's stop and stay in the center. Don't move. Just stay there. Just stay there just long enough to see. That's all. Just stay still. So it's quite different from anything else you've done in life. Not only does it reveal something quite different than anything else you've seen, but even the path itself is very different. And that's what makes it difficult. Simone Weil, a great Christian mystic of the last century, she said, there's an easiness in our salvation that is more difficult than all our efforts. Here's um, Ibn Arabi. He sees only God as being that which he sees, perceiving the seer to be the same as the seen. So here we bring in this other uh, idea, particularly that you find in the Abrahamic traditions of God. What God are we talking about? And you will find... Uh, all the Abrahamic traditions, the mystics of the Abrahamic traditions, will talk about, you know, everything is God. I already quoted Meister Eckhart, said everything is God. Everything that manifests is God. The pillow is God. The gong is God. The sky is God. The bushes are God. It's all God. And the seer is God. Who is it that's looking behind your eyes? Interesting, isn't it? Who is this self? You know, if you just do this as a meditative experiment, you sort of try to turn your mind's eye around inside and look back there. First of all, you find nothing. No thing, literally. And you find it's infinite. It's without parts. It's pure consciousness. Oh my gosh, this sounds like what Shankar was talking about, doesn't it? What if you're not looking out through your eyes? God is looking out through your eyes. And what if God is not looking at his creation? What if God is looking at his or her or its self? Like the ocean is aware of its own waves. This is what the mystics are trying to communicate. You see how radical this is? And yet you see how simple it is. Simple meaning, I mean, we're getting down to the nitty-gritties of perception. We have to go below our thinking minds. That naked experience. The Kabbalist, you shall then arrive at the intelligible and you will find all these one. That is, the intellect, the object of intellection, and the intelligible are all one. Basically, it's the same thing, but we can think here also not just about our physical environment, but even our thoughts are God. This is a problem for people on a spiritual path because in the beginning and through the intermediary stage of spiritual path, you're trying to liberate your attention from being enslaved by these thoughts. More precisely, by the worlds that thought creates. You know, be totally uh, seduced over and over again, dragged into these worlds. And then seekers start to uh, get the impression that something's wrong with thought. Thought is the enemy. They're fighting with thoughts all the time. Thought is not the enemy. Thought is just as much God as anything else. Thoughts are not the problem. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe it's not the thought itself. 
but maybe it's something about the thought that fools us. This leads you into other practices where you're not trying to get rid of thought or do anything with thought. You're trying to look directly at the thought. What is thought? Isn't thought a fascinating thing? Now, come on, let's think about this. We say, oh, that's good. In the mind, I say it verbally, and it gives it a you know a weight and a heaviness. But just say it in the mind. It's what is it? What's it made of? How, in a certain sense, insubstantial it is, and yet how powerful that insubstantial thought of good and bad is. You're not very good. You've been bad today. Oh, when a parent says that to a child, that can be devastating. What? Isn't that a fantastic mystery? See, we got to get to know ourselves. This was Socrates' model. Know thyself. Know thyself. And this is where it begins. Know thyself. And that means nitty-gritty. That does not mean knowing your enigramic number. That might help. <laughs> but we have to get down to the moment-to-moment perception. What is going on now? Or let me put it this way. I don't want to knock enigramic number. It could help. But don't stop there. Because that's what the trouble with all these uh, schemas is. They can be very helpful, but then people say, oh, well, see, now I know about Myers-Briggs, who I am on the scale. And now you, you think you know everything. That's the problem. You stop with that. You have to keep going, keep going. Bore into this to find out who we are. And then the last one. John uh, Roycebrook. What we are, that we behold. And what we behold, that we are. I'm beholding this. That's what I am. You know, you've heard this expression, you are what you eat. When I was a, a hippie in the 60s, you know, all the vegetarians would run out and say, you are what you eat. You want to be a cow? And I thought, well, I don't know. I don't want to be a turnip either. I think... <laughs> But look, it's like space and, and objects appearing in space. They're inseparable. That we behold. For in this pure vision, we are one life and one spirit with God. Here's spirit uh, serving the same purpose that the word consciousness serves today. We are one consciousness with God. Consciousness is one. And it is God. And again, you can do this little Gedanken experiment. How many consciousnesses have you ever experienced? How would you distinguish one consciousness from another? I mean, would it be a different weight or a different color? Does it have a taste? And if consciousness has no distinguishing marks, how would you tell one consciousness from another consciousness? How would you tell where consciousness ends? I mean, just physically in space. I mean, does it does it end, you know, like out here? Well, no, wait a minute. You know, I go out in the desert at night, I look up at the sky. I mean, where does consciousness end? So, in any case, explore. What my message to you here is, look, two things. One, I just read you these testimonies of these different mystics from all these different traditions, all converging on this one quite precise point. 
enlightenment is very mysterious. It's beyond words and all that, but it ain't that mysterious. It ain't mysterious in the sense that we can't follow uh, the fingers pointing to the moon. And here, all these fingers pointing to the same moon. That kind of thing was very persuasive to me on my path. And then I'm trying to give you just some ways you might explore this in your own experience. Even if you just accept this, even if you believe this, and you say, I believe it, I'm convinced. All these mystics say subject and object are one. If you stop there, that will become your obstacle. If you're satisfied with that belief, that is your obstacle. Don't be satisfied with that belief. You've got to see it for yourself. A perception as sudden as blinking. The intrinsic awareness that makes you laugh. Aha! That's what you're after. And don't stop short of that. Don't be satisfied with anything short of that. Keep walking, as the Zen masters say. Walk on. And then there's absolutely no reason anybody in this room can't walk through that gate. There's no reason in the world. So, that's my little talk this morning. If you have any uh, questions, we can take them up. Yes? Um, I've encountered in a lot of readings from mystics uh, this notion that to get this enlightenment, to, to wake up, you have to want it more than anything else. You have, there has to be you know, that exhaustion that comes after the fiercest desire you've ever had for anything, and, and nothing else is more important. Is that... Is that a state that you experienced prior to your waking up? Yeah, but you see, with a twist. <laughs> it's nice. I mean, I, I have to say this. God is all-knowing, and God knows each of our little quirks, so God gives us what we need, because God knows that we all can't go the, the traditional roots here. So what God gave me was, he knew I was never going to fall in love with God. I mean, I didn't believe in God, so I'm not going to fall in love with God. So he gave me a woman. Her name was Samantha. And he gave me a challenge. Would you give up everything for this woman? And he knew I had this idealistic, romantic streak in me. And he knew I wasn't happy, even though I had been successful in Hollywood and all that. So all these things came together. And he said, okay, here's your one chance to be happy. Would you give up everything for this woman? And, you know, with a little back and forth, da 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 But I eventually did, see? And so I wanted her, a bit more than Hollywood, more than everything else, I wanted her. So in that sense, yes, there was something I would give up everything for, you see. And then he got me right in this position where I'd given up everything for her. <laughs> and then he took her away. And I would say the thing is, not so much that you have to want something, uh, though that's a big help, want something more than your own life and whatnot. It's what you have to do is arrive at a place where you don't want anything because you can't think of anything to want. It's not that you... I don't want anything. It's there. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the wanting ceases because the wanting is what fuels the thinking and the storytelling and all that. So when the wanting dries up, it's like cutting off the fuel from the car. In the car, it doesn't go anywhere. It rolls to a stop. Then it rolls to a stop right on the edge of the precipice. Then only a little breeze. Knock it off. Yes, in the back. 
Um, would you say that this, what you're talking about, this enlightenment, waking up, or awareness, or liberation, or whatever word you want to put on it, is really beyond the mind, and that um, it is like all of the knowledge and all of the stuff sometimes is a hindrance, because once you come to the place where you, you know, can realize, you know, this isn't working for me. I'm unhappy, I'm unpleasant. So maybe if I give up all of this knowledge and just forget everything, then maybe this is what I'm looking for, and that's really what we're looking for. Yes, if you use the mind as the thinking mind, the mind that thinks it knows things. And it's not giving up. It's letting go of our hold on this knowledge as though it were reality. That's the first step. And then the other thing is, it is true that realization always happens, at the very least, between two thoughts. It cannot happen when there's a thought present. So it can be like as fast as a blink. One thought disappears. There's a moment of no thought. That's nirvokapa samadhi, no thought. And then the next thought can arise. And the trick between the two thoughts is nothing's there. You don't know nothing. I mean, you don't know nothing. That's why Christian mystics often talk about divine ignorance, entering the divine darkness. You don't know nothing. It's not the kind of, you don't know, like you said, well, I know I don't know anything. No, I mean, it's like, the mind's blank. It's more that fear that when you're asked for a response and then the mind won't produce it, you're supposed to introduce someone and your mind draws a blank. <laughs> and then awakening happens. And then the next thought you recognize as one of those merry dolphins. You don't believe it anymore. And then that is the truth that Jesus talked about. Then he uses the same word, will make you free. Liberation, as they say in the East. It's all the same. Yes. Um, in your description in the very beginning when you talked about your enlightenment, you said something like, um, if I'd known what it was going to be like, I never would have gone there. That's right. I'd like you to elaborate on that. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd do you a service if I did. But part of it is that because it is a moment of total unknowing. Just a moment. It can be more than a moment. It can be longer. It has to be at least a moment. In my case, it was a kind of a descent. It took place over about three days into a state that I call kenosis. I put all my eggs in one basket. The basket broke, and there was nothing else I wanted. So I had really no, no desires. You know, I just was going along on automatic pilot. And over about a three-day period, I got to the point where literally my mind would not read. The words weren't congelling into any meaningful sentences or anything like that. So that was my experience. Some people, it's, you know, it is literally a moment, like Dr. Wolf. He spent 29 years proving to himself intellectually, because he was a philosopher, that he was already that which he was seeking. And finally, he got to the point where there was nothing more for his mind to do. And this is the way he would describe it. The thought arose that I am already that which I seek. Therefore, Give up the search. And he said he had no expectations of anything happening. And then in the next moment, the heavens opened up. That's the way he put it. So there was this moment where he did give up the search. Not that he made a conscious decision to give up the search. It came to an end. And it stopped. 
And in that moment of emptiness, boom. So it could be that, you see. So that part of it can all vary. It's the principle that is essential here. It is like listening to the sound of a gong. If I ring this gong and you listen to the sound, it gets quieter and quieter, and there's a moment where it's gone. And that moment is absolute silence. That's a discontinuous moment. It gets gradually quieter, but then when it's gone, it's gone without a trace. Totally, completely, thoroughly gone. That is the moment that is required. And it could be a moment in dreamless sleep. It could be samadhi. You could work for 20 years in a cave in the Himalayas and consciously be able to create a state of samadhi in which there are no objects whatsoever arising. And that is a way to go if you, you know, have the time and the inclination to do that. So whether it's some high state you've developed through meditation practice or whether it's uh, just your life situations brought you to it, but there has to be at least that instinct. I mean, I was lucky. I had a kind of awakening. I mean, it happened in the state of dreamless sleep, between waking and sleep. So it was just an unblemished perception of the ultimate groundless ground of everything. And then I had the benefit of getting up and opening my eyes and the whole world just appeared and it was just all divine. You know, there was no time for anything else. And I keep saying I, but that was the whole thing. There was consciousness and there's the world. And the world's not different from consciousness. And that's it. And nothing has happened to me since. Not because a lot of things haven't happened, but there's no one there to happen to. You do have to relearn some things like to have preferences and stuff sometimes. I mean, I have natural preferences, but living, I hate to put it this way, living with you people, it's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> so over the years, I realized, no, it's not compassion, it's delight. I want to interact with people a lot, so I have to come up with preferences. What I like, what I don't like, I have to interact with people. And I want to, it's a joy. You're all wonderful. You're all divine beings. You really are. Yes. I just had one question. Yeah. You have mentioned today, and I've heard you before, if I'd known what was going to happen, I'm not sure I would have done it. Did you have a choice? No. Okay. I mean, you know, in a certain sense we do. Well, let me put it this way. <coughs> Mystics, including myself, are always treating us as though we had a choice. Well, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? You know, why don't you do this? I mean, the, the teachings are presented as though you have a choice. And at that level, there seems to be a choice. So what mystics are really saying is, since you think you have a choice, free will, why don't you exercise that free will in a way that will liberate you from the suffering that comes from the delusion that you have free will, rather than just... <laughs> Keep on creating the delusion and the suffering that goes with it. So it's a tricky thing. And we have to be careful when and how we talk about those things. Because part of the game is we do have a choice. And we certainly can make uh, morally right decisions and morally wrong decisions. So we shouldn't use that as an excuse not to enter into this game fully. And that includes moral decisions we have to make. So when we're talking at that level, right is right and wrong is wrong. But ultimately, no. No one has a choice. All right. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? And I think there's some goodies out there. In fact, I know there's some goodies. They said they bought you some cookies and stuff. 
And uh, check out the library, Last Chance, or oh, Tuesday night. Tuesday it'll be open if you want to stop by the library until September, so second to last chance. And have a wonderful summer, and peace to you all.